Okay, all right, let's get back to work here. Um, have you ever stolen from an employer? Yes. And where were you employed? NASA. <laughs> Yeah. Would you steal a rocket ship? <laughs> no, just some pens and some plans. Plans? Space plans. <laughs> Welcome to Move Left Idiots, a socialist talk podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Montarulo, uh, joined here by my co-host, Comrade Dracula. Comrade, uh, what's going on? I got older. Since the last time we talked, I got older. I had a birthday. Um, yeah. There, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've had dozens of now, birthdays. Right? Yeah, well, no, I decided to be 27 again for another year. I don't know how I pulled it off, but uh, for like the last, I don't know, 15 years, I decided <laughs> to stay 27. It's it's amazing. Right. Um you know, because of COVID, everything's closed for the most part still. There's still, like, idiots going to bars, right? They're just, like, sure. they can't help themselves. They have to go to the bar. And, like, I I don't want to do that unless it's summer and I'm sitting, like, on a patio and nobody's within 20 feet of me. So, right. uh, but the weather was nice. Um, weather's getting great. So I just went out for a bike ride and uh, rode by myself, had my little three-pound subwoofer uh, Bluetooth boombox, just, you know, blasting music. And I happened to uh, roll very near to the uh, planetarium i rolled past the shed aquarium which is just down the shore and uh they had all of the, the lights on and they're big like uh like the the big aquarium room where they've like the you know people come in and they pay money to watch all the sea mammals jump who are you know in prison for their entire lives so that you know the aquarium can make money uh and they had the all lights on and like the shades were open I'm like, oh shit! I'm gonna go fucking look at the the porpoises. Right, I right. get up to the windows, and they've got like a whole like family of porpoises just swimming around in there. There's no people in the audience. There's nobody there. There's no trainers. There's nobody in the whole fucking thing. And there's a baby. It's like a little three and a half foot long baby. It's just jumping. It's breaching up out of the water over and over and over. I'm like, oh shit! I gotta go get my fucking camera. So I run back to my bike grab my uh, i have like a like a uh, just a digital slr camera that takes better mm -hmm. video than my my phone will and i run back up to the windows and but now they're not jumping right now they're just kind of staying under the water because i don't know they got worn out and i uh so i'm sitting there filming and waiting and all of a sudden like the shades just drop in front of me like apparently somebody <laughs> uh, in security saw me on the cameras and was like oh shit we forgot to close the shades for the night uh, but so for a brief moment on my birthday, I got to watch the, the dolphins or porpoises uh, and a baby one jumping out of the water, nice. frolicking to and fro. So uh, not every day you get to see that for, for free. Right. Yeah. So um, obviously uh, you, you probably heard that we do have a third person on today. Uh, we uh, So, you know, today's episode is going to kind of be a special episode. Um, we Very don't special. have a, right. We don't have a ton of, uh, you know, big topics and politics to hit this week. So we're going to be talking a lot about something that uh, both of us, you know, are pretty passionate about and have spoken about on this show quite a bit, which is uh, space and, and all things, you know, therein. Um, 
So to do that, uh, we do have uh, a special guest on this week. Uh, Dr. Lucy, uh, Lucianne Walkowicz uh, is, uh, or I'm sorry, was the NASA Library of Congress Chair uh, in Astrobiology from 2017 to 2018. Uh, and an uh, astronomer at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, as well as the founder of the Just Space Alliance. Uh, They hosted an event in September titled Becoming, or a couple of years ago, uh, Becoming uh, Interplanetary, What Living on Earth Can Teach Us About Living on Mars. Uh, Lucianne, welcome on. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, you know, like I said, we're going to be talking a lot about uh space and a lot of you know related things obviously we just had the big perseverance launch uh a couple couple weeks ago i guess now uh landing not launch oh excuse me yes that's right landing they launched Um, years ago right 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 (laughs) um and yeah so you know we're gonna be talking a lot about uh things of that nature and and you know areas that you specifically focus on uh in terms of you know colonization of mars and things like that but we do want to get a couple of quick politics uh topics out of the way just so we can really devote the bulk of the episode to that um the payload of the episode if you will (laughs) right correct yeah we'll make bad space puns all episodes so i i I do notice you you did you were recently (laughs) you were recently on 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 a children's space podcast so i i will try we we will try our best not to give you whiplash from the the 180 (laughs) degree turn of 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 a children's show to to our decidedly not uh family friendly podcast but i mean kids ask great questions they just uh swear less and and don't talk about politics so much right 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 (laughs) Really, yeah, no, I know. I may, I may switch, uh, may switch podcasting uh, avenues. All right, so um, real quick, we did want to talk briefly about the COVID stimulus bill uh, passing through Congress. And actually, I, I was just reading before we went on air; it passed through the House as well, so it's on its way to Biden to be signed uh, into law. Uh, this this you know fourteen hundred dollar slash not really two thousand uh, dollar stimulus bill that we're uh, you know it, it, it's just we, we we talked a lot last week about it and we don't have to go into the entire you know uh, we don't have to go into the depths of how bad this bill is and how uh not adequate it is for for people who have been struggling for months and months and months without any relief whatsoever um you know the unemployment uh they, they made sure they worked with all of the centrists in the senate to further slash unemployment unemployments now it's 300 a week uh extra ui uh rather than the 400 a week which again i don't know why that was the starting point when even trump's shitty stimulus bill had 600 a week in unemployment uh, way back when that was passed, uh, and you know that was allowed to expire. Uh, you, you know, and it, it, it's just it, it's woefully inadequate. And this is probably the only stimulus bill we're going to get because they passed this re- through reconciliation with zero Republican votes after doing all of that slashing uh, to it. And uh, you know, the one big thing we were talking about last week was the fifteen dollar minimum wage uh, provision, which. The Senate parliamentarian, which again, I, uh, you know, we, pretty sure is a made up thing. I think they just made that up, you know, two weeks ago to, to make sure that we didn't get a $15 minimum wage, uh, d- decided that that was not relevant to a stimulus bill um, and was not allowed in. So now, in the time since we've last recorded, uh, Bernie had put forth an amendment to include the $15 minimum wage in the stimulus bill anyway. 
which was defeated like 58 to to you know the 42 or whatever that the final vote count was but you know it, it, just pathetic and it, it, it was it was kind of expected but I, I i am glad that we got people on the record with their votes um but you know it seems like we didn't even need to try to get people on the records for their votes because some people were so thrilled to vote against giving people a living wage that they did a little curtsy as they voted it down a little dance um, a, a little, little dance a little jig yeah, yeah. So, um i i don't know i didn't know much about christian cinema i i, I know there's you know, we don't really have any such things as progressive senators aside from Bernie. And, you know, that that's a, to me, a low bar <laughs> that that's, that's yeah, as far sure. left as we get in the Senate. Right. Um, but I don't know, like I, I watched that and I was like, I, I was aghast like that. What I don't know what she was doing. I, I truly don't know uh, it, it, how <laughs> she could have so much enthusiasm to vote against people earning barely $30,000 a year nationwide that she would come down to the, to the front of the Senate right. to like enthusiastically jam her thumb down and do this little like sayonara. I'm out of here thing. You don't have to come down there to vote. Most people vote from their seat. Like it li you literally, <laughs> yeah. the only reason you do that is to make a show of it. Like, you know, with John McCain, with the, with the, uh, the, the, uh, ACA repeal that he came down and did like the big thumbs down, you know, that everyone put all over cable news like that. You do that when you want to be, you know, when you want to make a media spectacle of yourself. So she wanted to make sure that everyone saw her do that, including Mitch McConnell, who she tapped on the shoulder right before she went down to make sure he was uh, watching her as she did it. Yeah. I, I realize this is not about space. Can I chime in? <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. That's why that's why we picked you to come on the show and nobody else from outer space. Right. Thank you. Also, I appreciate being uh, said that I'm outer from outer space. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> and I, you have to wonder. Like, that's a good point about McCain because I think uh, cinema is one of his mentees, um, and so I wonder like how much of that show mm. was kind of born out of um, his like prior <clears throat> prior demonstration. Um, but yeah, it's really. As if it wasn't already bad enough to watch people wearing more than, you know, like $1,400 worth of clothes <laughs> debate right. what they're going to send us a year into the pandemic. It's, it's just, it's I just like that she brought her right. purse with her when she went down there to do the little thing as if to, to say like, no, I'm literally walking out the door after this. this is how much I, I'm incensed that I even have to be here. <laughs> this is on my to, list of errands for these stop, uh, disgusting <laughs> pores. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then, of course, her, like, whoever her media person or handler was. Um, communications director. Yeah. Uh, Huffington Post inquired about the thumbs down little jig curtsy. And uh, Senator Cinema spokesperson said, it is sexist to comment on a female politician's body language or physical demeanor. Right. Yeah. Uh, like... <laughs> Joanne Reed's uh, body language expert who, uh, who talked about how Bernie right. Sanders is misogynistic because of his arm motions exactly. can be reached for comment, well, I guess. I, I, re I respond to somebody posted about this on Twitter, and I said, uh, of course sexist Bernie bros would turn a historic vote into an attack on the body of a white woman of color like Senator Cinema." <laughs> right. So, I mean, look, you know, at the end of the day, 
and and Bernie, I think when he put forth this amendment, obviously knew it wasn't going to pass because you know the filibuster still exists, even though it does not have to and could be completely you know eliminated by the Democrats, and they refuse to. Um, he knew it wasn't going to get sixty votes, but the whole point of this was to force a vote on it and get it on the record, you know, which is we don't even get into that, but that's obviously something we talked about quite a bit, uh, you know, when it when it came to you know, using actually wielding power that you have as a small minority in Congress, you know, to vote as a block to actually get the things that you want. And, you know, the shitty centrist Democrats, you know, the more, I mean, I, I say that broadly because they're all pretty much centrist, but the more centrist Democrats, the cinemas and the mansions of the world um, know about that very well. They use their power all the time to vote as a block and to kill anything that they think is, you know, actually going to help people, <laughs> they make sure that they do their their due diligence to get just enough taken out of it so that doesn't help, you know, nearly as many people as it would. Um, now, the progressives in Congress never seem to be willing to do that. I mean, they know they can do that, but they're never willing to do that. And I just don't understand what the point of them even being in office is if they're not going to use that power it's brought into them that they think if they're nice to the bully long enough for enough years they'll stop getting wedgies and get shoved into the locker right they all have that thing where they're just like oh i i i can't stand up to pelosi you know i i can't you know occupy her office with a bunch of sunrise protesters anymore like i learned my lesson i got sat down to talk to and now i call her mama bear like right. that's how quickly they you know whip that attitude out of you once you're actually in there yeah no, it's, re it's really a shame, but, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, it's better than nothing. Could have been a lot better, but we are going to get some kind of relief maybe soon in the next month or so, I guess we'll see. Um, but again, you know, don't expect another one because they passed this through reconciliation uh, and they only get two reconciliation votes a year, I think, or maybe one or two. Um, and you know, they're not going to get, they're not going to get another one. They're good. They're, they'll use that second one on, maybe the infrastructure bill um and they could have unlimited you know <laughs> reconciliation votes which which you know just eliminate the filibuster and you'd be able to use your majority to actually pass whatever you wanted uh but they don't they, want a majority they just don't they want don't to do want it they don't want to do it <laughs> they, right they want that razor thin majority and then they can go oh but we can't do anything with it and then they want to pretend as though they need the filibuster to somehow still have power when they're the minority but they don't want to be the majority that's it's right. just it's nothing. So moving on, let's jump into that uh, audio clip. Um, there was a little kerfuffle in the world of international justice uh, a couple of weeks ago when uh, Palestine decided they wanted to uh, yeah, try to seek some kind of remedy for uh, being murdered <laughs> by the state of Israel, uh, having their homes demolished, uh, being gassed. Um, you know, and so they, they, you know, a couple of years prior, uh, basically applied to be a, a member of the International Criminal Court, right? Which not every country is, but they decided to. And the, the U.S. State Department doesn't like that. Biden's State Department is following the Trump administration in being lockstep with Israel and rejecting entirely the, the entire premise of the International Criminal right. Court as having any jurisdiction over Palestine because they say Palestine doesn't exist. They're right. not a state. They're stateless people. Uh, but that basically is, is, you know, saying what they're saying, the State Department or Biden is saying is that if Palestine doesn't exist, then the West Bank and Gaza have already been annexed by Israel. 
right, under which they still would have rights in the International Criminal Court. So when pressed on this question, um, there was a uh, State Department spokesperson who just had this. We'll just roll this and listen to how right. fucking insane this right. is. Right. This is great. So where, 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 do the where should the Palestinians go to get accountability for what they claim to be uh, problems? To Israeli courts? Where, where, where do they go? Matt, look, we, uh, of course, um, the United States is always going to stand up for uh, human rights. Uh, we're always going to stand up. Um, uh, Matt, that is why I think you have, that is why you have heard us continue to endorse and to call for a two-state solution to this long-running conflict. Uh, a two-state solution because it protects Israel's identity as a Jewish and democratic state, but also uh, because uh, it will give the Palestinians a viable state of their own and fulfill their legitimate uh, uh, aspirations for dignity and self-determination. Where do they go? <laughs> wow. I, I love that guy. I don't know who that is, that reporter. <laughs> I, I, I want to find out who that was. You just imagine him at a bar, you know, at like, uh, like you know, it's last call, just sitting there, just where do they go? Where do they go? <laughs> Still saying it. Right. So, and somebody pointed out in the comments under that, if you, if you get that kind of a rambling, stuttering non-answer, you're doing your job as a reporter. If you don't get that answer, then you need to keep asking more questions because, I mean, that was just, you know. Or just the same question over and over again. Where did they go? (laughs) Right, right. Um, Well, in this, this flunky who was probably like half my age uh, for the State Department, and I've worked for the State Department. I got to, you know, see some of these people up close. Like, they're they're just like the worst people people from corporate PR you could possibly imagine, right? right? And it, when he said, "Oh, it's a two state solution," that's what they always default to, right? Well, if it's a, if you support a two state solution, then you support Palestine as a state. Therefore, you have to agree they have a right to an international criminal court. Right. right, and they have rights under the Geneva Convention, right? Right, and then he then he switches to, oh, but well, we support a Jewish democratic state. Well, pick one because it can't be both. You can't have a theocracy and a democracy at the same time. You can't have a, a state where where people of a certain religion have different rights than people of another religion. You right. can't have those things under a democracy. Right, and they know the two state solution means that you know that of course we've we've known for for years now that that's just the excuse that the right wing government of Israel uses to you know hold up as a pretense of like oh well we do want a two state solution but the Palestinians can't be reasoned with because look they're terrorists and look you look at Hamas and look at like they they just use that as an excuse of like oh well we can't come to the negotiating table in good faith it's the exact same thing that we do with Iran like oh well Iran backed militia groups bombed our barracks therefore we can't get back into the Iran nuclear deal that they violated because we violated it first and you know if you look at every attempt you know every 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 attempt at this as a quote-unquote two-state solution the concessions that palestinians have to make before israel will even negotiate with them are like nobody would ever agree to well they're designed for that right unconscionable right it's basically like well if you give up your land then we'll think about giving you rights to live on it right that's basically what it is um so this 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 kind of colonization that we still put up with uh has made me think a lot about you know our our future endeavors in space and uh lucia when you were um the uh i'm sorry the nasa library of congress chair in astrobiology 
um, you organized something that was you referred to as an unconference. Uh, and I had some questions about that, that title, uh, but the, the name of it was called Decolonizing Mars. And I'm very excited and very interested to talk to you about all of, the, of that which it entails, especially as we are right now on a, uh, a mission um, that is grander in every aspect that I can gather uh, going to Mars currently with the uh, Perseverance rover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's been actually kind of uh, quite a month for Mars. Um, so the Perseverance rover got a lot of attention, um, uh, you know, in part because it's NASA. Uh, but also there have been two other missions that have arrived, um, one from the UAE, the Hope Probe, and then another from China, um, Tianwen-1, um, that uh -oh. arrived the week before Perseverance. <laughs> Does it have lasers that are going to shoot our probe? Are we going to have a little... <laughs> It's funny that we didn't hear much about that in the, in the U.S. press. <laughs> yeah, no, you didn't. I didn't even know about that. That's interesting. Well, and the the interesting one of the in most interesting things to me about it is that it's um, so Tianwen One is not only an orbiter but also a lander, so something that, like it sounds, lands on the surface, and then there's also a rover involved. Um, but there's actually legislation that prevents uh, U.S. and Chinese scientists from um, from collaborating. And so there's been relatively little information about, like, what yeah. are the capabilities of this, like, amazing achievement? Um, because, you know, like, there's been some overview papers, but, you know, not like a ton of different details. And right. by, you know, by hmm. contrast, when we put other stuff in space, a lot of times, um, even if there's in the U.S. press, like a big emphasis on the U.S. aspects of it, usually like ESA, the European Space Agency, is involved in some way. Like there's a lot of collaboration between like ESA. And, and, and we've been collaborating with the Soviet Union and Russia since the early seventies on joint missions. So it's not like it's some, you know, taboo thing in the world of, of space exploration to be working with our, you know, communist adversaries. Yeah, it's actually very specific to China because of um, the actions of like Congressman Wolf from many years ago um, that, like we we actually like back in like 2013 or something we're supposed to have a conference um for the kepler space mission which was this like planet hunting space telescope and um, that was going to be at nasa ames and nasa ames which is the nasa center in the bay area has a public area they have like public events there's a conference center it's not like behind any kind of security perimeter or anything mm -hmm. and um we actually like had to organize around the fact that a number of um, Chinese nationals who were working in the United States and like making a bunch of scientific discoveries with this telescope were told that they couldn't come to the conference um, wow. because it would like violate. Who, who specifically told them they couldn't come? So it it's not clear who exactly was in charge of it, but basically like when you go to a conference, you like submit um some kind of you know application and usually it's just you pay some fee or whatever and you get to go to the conference but i guess there was some additional like poop to jump through um because of the fact that it was on a nasa center um and so even though it was in the public area of the nasa center like like anybody can walk in and go see like a science talk there but then this right. the conference because it's like sharing of information between u.s and chinese scientists you know yeah it was what a great way to do something down yes. on a napkin and like sneak it to you know their handlers and that gets sent through a tube under the ocean so the uh yeah so that that's just really 
really bizarre to me and and paranoid and and was kind of totally goes against the whole idea of like us being a united race that's exploring the heavens together um but just as far as conferences go like i I was hoping you could talk a little bit um about the unconference aspect of of what you organized in dc with decolonizing mars why was it called an unconference was it sort of to subvert sort of that bullshit that you had (laughs) seen happen before um, so I, I can't take credit for calling it an unconference. An unconference predates me. Um, so the idea of an unconference is that like normally when you go to like any kind of professional conference, there's a program. All of the people who get to talk have been selected by some committee beforehand. Um, and most of what you do in a conference setting is like listen to people give these talks. And then maybe there's some like time for Q&A or some time for discussion. There's a hierarchy. Whatever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I really like about uh, this unconference format is that it's essentially an agenda-less conference. So the the idea instead of like having a program beforehand is that you get a bunch of people together and like all the hard part is in the beginning where you like figure who, who will have interesting conversations if I just put them all in a room together. Um, and then at the very beginning, once everybody is gathered, you have a there's like various ways to do this physically. But let's say in this case, you had a whiteboard that had rooms, so different physical spaces and then time slots and then giant post-it notes where you could write up like, I want to have a discussion about Afrofuturism. I want to have a discussion about, you know, energy sustainability for space exploration. And anyone can put up what they want to talk about. And this kind of, you know, because it's everybody's milling about in the same space, it naturally leads to people combining ideas and collaborating with each other. And then there's no, um, there's no like passive listening time, really. Like people don't usually use unconference sessions to like give a talk, even though technically you could like in practice, what it means is that everybody spends that time having discussions. Um, And to me, like that's the most interesting part of a conference is like when you get to talk about stuff. So it's a little, um, I think it can be nerve wracking for people because they're like, what do you mean? I have no way of knowing what's going to happen when I get there. (laughs) Um, But also I I think usually I've seen people get excited and um, feel empowered around like crafting the conference that they want to have. Absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about decolonizing, this is a concept that I've been um, very interested in in the world of activism, especially around housing justice. You know, when people hear the word decolonization, they go, well, we're not a colony anymore. Like their their concept of it is like, well, you know, all of Africa was colonized by European nations and all those countries had to fight for independence. And now they're, you know, dealing with post-colonial issues. But it's, it's like that that legacy of colonialism doesn't really go away, especially in, in our country where, you know, people who used to just subsist off the land now are forced on reservations or just just our system of housing now where you're paying a speculative rate on housing rather than like the actual like what does this structure i live in actually cost to maintain it's it's you know that that idea that you have to pay for the land that you were born on to live off i think very much is is ingrained in us to the point where we don't understand that the colonial roots of that right and you know, when, when they, people hear decolonization, they go, oh, so all the white people have to move, go back to Europe. And I'm, I'm kind of like, well, I mean, like, I don't want to necessarily start there, but we could get to that point eventually. <laughs> but like, let's, let's just start with like letting people, right. uh, you know, not have to suffer and struggle 
uh, just to afford basic necessities, you know, like yeah. things, things that could be nationalized, uh, like housing, not necessarily even, uh, you know, public housing has a very negative image because we've, we've allowed it to fail over and over. Pruitt Igo, uh, great example. Mm. Uh, but things like a community land trust, Bernie Sanders, when he was mayor of uh, uh, Burlington. Shoot, yeah, Burlington. Burlington, Vermont, uh, created the largest community land trust, something like 3,000 units of, of uh, price-controlled housing in perpetuity, which means forever. Uh, awesome idea. And it's it's run by a nonprofit rather than the government, right? So th- that's kind of where I come from in my brain when I think about the idea of decolonization. Um, so I'm very interested to hear uh, from you about what your thoughts are as far as uh, how decolonizing Mars, of course, we haven't colonized it yet, but we want to make sure that we don't do that in the first place, at least with our sort of uh, strip mining view of what colonization would look like. Yeah. um, Well, and I should speak to, you know, the word decolonize itself has kind of these two parallel lives where it has a very specific meaning in indigenous scholarship, which, you know, you can boil down to land back like to decolonize means mm. to like repatriate, you know, for example, uh, objects that belong to indigenous peoples, lands that belong to indigenous peoples. Um, there's this really awesome paper that you can generally find uh, like open copies of online called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Um, the authors are Tuck and Yang. Um, mm-hmm. Excuse me, Tuck and Wang, I think. Uh, and, you know, they talk about how decolonization has this like pop meaning to it, too, now where people are like, decolonize this thing, decolonize that thing, um, which gets used a lot as sort of like um, a, a way of saying, like, draw attention to the colonial history of and in its like most diluted form sometimes means like make more equitable or just be less racist. Mm-hmm. And so in in choosing that name for something like to apply to something like Mars, right? So, you know, what I really wanted to do was draw attention to like Mars as land. Um, you know, like you you cannot use like the sort of pure non-metaphorical meaning of decolonize with respect to Mars, right? Because Mars does not have indigenous right. people on it. However, Mars is like, as far as I'm concerned anyway, a sovereign world and in and of itself has its own history. Um, It is like a physical space, you know, like a lot of times we forget that the places that we talk about in space are like physical objects that have their own history of like, you know, in Mars's case, potentially like a past of life, potentially like life under the surface. You know, we don't Mm -hmm. just because we don't see like life scuttling across the surface doesn't mean that it might not still exist. there. That's exactly, you know, when Columbus came here, so these people, brown skinned people living in the tropics and was like, those aren't humans. I can subjugate them. They're not people. This isn't their land. I can own them. They're, they're, you know, that, that mentality is to me the same mentality when you look at what we think is a lifeless rock, which, which we don't even know for sure. Uh, like you said, under the surface, there could be microbes. Um, and we just assume it belongs to us. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, and, you know, that, that process exists like as an ongoing colonial process, like here in the United States where, you know, a lot of the places that we think of as being like wilderness, you know, that idea of wilderness came out of like white colonists basically wanting to define the land as being empty, even though, you know, or like sparsely populated by a few people, which was not at all the case, right? There were like multiple nations here, each of which had their own like 
governments had their own trade with each other and it was not empty at all right people were dispossessed of their lands and so you know keeping um that history in mind when we go to space i think is really important because it's also something that people are quick to dismiss because they're like well there are no people there um but just as you said you know the the way that we've defined like what lives count as important um has changed a lot over the course of human history even on this planet yeah how how concerned are you i mean you know just and speaking to that and obviously we're we're closer than we've kind of ever been to actually uh putting (laughs) i hate using this phrase but boots on the ground uh of the surface of mars how i mean how concerning is it that we're seeing you know uh i'm sure not coincidentally uh the creation of a you know, armed combat branch of, of space exploration now, uh, you know, obviously with Space Force that Trump created, now Biden decided he's not going to uh, dissolve or, or, you know, you know, cancel. So, I, I mean, it, it just seems like we're already putting the, the chess pieces, you know, in play for just a horrible, uh, you know, foot forward in, in, in this kind of, you know, future well, Anthony, space exploration. You saw Ed Astra, like you, you gotta have some, you know, we gotta protect Brad Pitt on the moon from space pirates. <laughs> right, right, right. We need to do, do Mad Max and zero gravity is what we need to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think like having, um, you know, the past administration was like so very, um, you know, not that the current administration is not all also like yay privatization. Um, but, you know, in particular with like the creation of the Space Force, we're seeing like a lot of norms that have um, really ensured like peace and like peaceful exploration, like the, the things that have been international agreements that have been around since like before the Apollo landing, um, namely like the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 kind of puts forth that like space is, you know, for the benefit of all humankind and you know like nobody can own territory like you can't own land um but you know it was that that change has been happening over the past several years and it's not just the trump administration you know obama um passed the uh what's called the space act in 2015 that says like okay this doesn't conflict with the treaty because you can't own land but now you can own resources so if you find something then you can own it, um, even if you don't own the land that your like mining equipment is on. But so total Daniel Plainview right there. Like I don't have to own the land; I can drill for the on an angle under someone else's land and get the oil under their land. Yes, right? well, yeah, yeah basically the drinking the space here, milkshake. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have a milkshake <laughs> and I have a milkshake, and my straw reaches all the way across the room. <laughs> drink your milkshake it's my favorite movie of all time by the way it's, oh it's, it's one of mine too actually yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh but just just such a perfect perfect encapsulation of capitalism that like i don't have to necessarily own everything i can figure out ways to get what you what should by rights be yours right by having more money and more technology to, to do all this stuff so you look well, at guys like elon musk and jeff right. bezos and you're like oh my god like i've seen alien like <laughs> i know the Wayland yutani corporation doesn't care about the crew crew expendable all they care about is getting that xenomorph right and i think about those people being the ones in charge of space exploration and it terrifies me Right. Well, I, I, I did want to ask you about that because that's some, you know, what is the the kind of prognosis for the future 
of of kind of equitable space exploration when the public face of space space uh, exploration to so much of the public is you know a dipshit like Elon Musk who you know gained his wealth from his family's you know blood diamond fortune and uh, you know just has no concept of ethics whatsoever. I mean he literally jokes about you know cooing Bolivia on Twitter and the in the replies of some hundred follower account like he and and hate like fundamentally hates the public. He hates public transit. He hates public transportation. Mm-hmm. He's convinced that everyone should be have their private car that travels around in an underground highway system. Like that'll somehow work better than our above ground highway. Which will be system. great when right. one car gets in an accident. <laughs> that, won't be, right. that won't be an issue at all. Remember um, when he wanted to send a submarine through a tunnel that couldn't fit his submarine and to save these kids trapped in a cave? Oh, and, and the then diver, he accused the, the diver. Was like, <laughs> told him it wouldn't work. So Elon called him a pedophile. Right. Like, what? Yeah. Right. I I mean, I think like, you know, so the Elons and the Jeff Bezoses of the world, um, which are, you know, basically just <laughs> just them. Um, but there's also like a handful of other sort of like wealthy um, people right. who are interested in, in making, you know, private space travel slash exploration in various forms happen. And I would say like, you know, in particular, Musk um, is very noisy. But one of the things that I've I've found very encouraging is that there are actually people who are interested in space exploration and like the future of humanity not being like that. Um, It's just that, you know, when you're a billionaire with like a a huge like following on Twitter and like also I will add a very... um, virulent uh group of bros that will yes you know defend you like uh just recently a, a friend who's a um a science journalist shannon styrone um wrote an article called mars is a hellhole that is about this idea that you know elon musk and jeff bezos kind of always use this um this idea that like we have to go to mars or we have to go to space wherever you know wherever their attention is on um, whether it's space or the moon or Mars, that we have to do that because it's the only way to save humanity. And her point was a pretty reasonable one, which is that Mars is like way less hospitable <laughs> under every possible circumstance. Like, then I, I wanted to, to, to touch on that a little bit because I just I don't think people understand why Mars is uninhabitable, why Mars is a hellhole, why there's really no way to terraform it. And your one of your articles that I've read uh, touched on this uh, a bit, and just just talking about how inhospitable it is, but also like you know if you try to create an atmosphere there, it would just evaporate into space instantly, right? And I don't think people understand why, and I think not understanding why has a great deal to do with them not appreciating how special Earth is, right? And you know, so so yeah. Mars is about half the. Uh, half the diameter of earth but its uh, mass is 10 times less it's just much less dense and it also has a solid core right we have a a, we actually have a solid core surrounded by a liquid core surrounded by more solid Uh, and that that liquid uh, ring uh, essentially inside earth spins in the opposite direction of earth's orbit so you have all this volcanic mass under the crust turning the opposite direction of the the crust of the earth, which is essentially why we have such a powerful magnetosphere that protects and holds in our atmosphere from being blasted away by solar wind. And and this is my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. 
Yeah, no, no, you're right. I mean, so, um, you know, planets are born with like a certain amount of heat. And because the Earth is larger, our melty, you know, our melty nougat interior (laughs) um, (laughs) has not like cooled off to the point where it's solid. But in Mars's case, we think that Mars probably had like a magnetic field in the past. It has what we call like fossil magnetic fields now where it has like a little bit of magnetism, depending on like how the rocks have... um, you know, solidified in place, but it doesn't have that sort of shark cage-esque protection that like our planet has from its magnetic field. And does the size and relative closeness of our moon and its gravity pulling on the earth have anything to do with perpetuating that sort of gyro we have on and that, that creates that magnetosphere? So the moon doesn't directly affect our magnetosphere so much. In that case, it's mostly like the motion of um, the like molten material. Um, and and I should point mm-hmm. out that also like magnetic field generation is like hugely difficult and like not very well understood. Um, so if this sounds like magic, it's like I- still... ICP. ICP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Work. Yeah. No, actually, like. <laughs> ICP had a fair point. It is kind of difficult to describe how magnets right, right. work. Um, yeah. I, had, I have a, real quick, I have Profound a friend philosophers who, of our uh, time. <laughs> I, I have a friend who was, uh, he worked in a particle collider. And I was like, well, so what is the difference between centrifugal and centripetal? And he's like, dude, we don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. I was like, well, there, there is science on the precipice of what we do and don't know. Thank God right. we have people working there. <laughs> yeah well, so, it, oh i just wanted to answer your yeah, question yeah, about yeah. the moon because the moon even though it doesn't um really have much to do with our magnetic field the moon actually does make the earth more habitable because it um through its magnetic in, or excuse me its gravitational interaction with the earth helps stabilize our the tilt of our axis so the mm. fact oh, that we good. yeah so the fact that we have this like 23 and a half degree tilt off of like a top spinning on its axis is what gives us the seasons, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But in other worlds where you don't have like a pretty, like our moon is also pretty massive. So it it exerts a fair amount of gravitational influence on us. Um, It is big. Yes. Uh, I looked up real quick. I looked up like the the relative size (laughs) of Phobos and uh, Deimos. Oh yeah, they're like potatoes. Of of Mars. And they're like uh, 14 miles in diameter and six miles in diameter. Like they're basically asteroids. Yeah. Um, Whereas Earth's moon is... Uh, uh, 2,100 miles in diameter uh, and is about 81 times less in mass than Earth. Yeah, uh, they're they're teeny tiny. You can actually see um, there have been some pictures taken by Mars orbiters of the shadow of um, Phobos and Deimos are the names of uh, Mars's little potato moons. And you can see their (laughs) shadows like passing over the the surface kind of like um if you've ever been in an airplane and seen like the shadow of your airplane it kind of looks like that but you know potato shape so right. kind of round not airplane <laughs> shape obviously if i was flying around <laughs> on a potato at thirty thousand feet up that's what it would so, look like yes <laughs> but i mean to your point about you know terraforming and obviously how it's just I, I think people just can't wrap their heads around the idea i mean and i you know largely i think science fiction is is to blame and and science fiction is is great and i you know i i, I love it but I, I think it's also, you know, while it's also inspired a lot of people probably to get into the sciences, I think it's probably given unreal, unrealistic expectations of what we can and should do. So even like beyond the ethics of, of you know, transforming the entire ecosystem of a planet, I don't think people can grasp the fact that 
if we had if we could figure out the technology to terraform uh mars we wouldn't need to leave the earth that we're currently destroying with you know with carbon dioxide yeah <laughs> turns <laughs> out like, it turns out the, the planet we live on like right and and that's the thing is that like i think um and this is like, I think pretty common among the sort of like Silicon Valley, like tech, techno utopians, um, or even just like techno optimists, is okay. that the idea that like you can just sort of do some stuff to Mars and then like refill it is like almost like this like empty swimming pool model of like what a planet is. Like, oh, if a planet doesn't have water on it, like you just need to do some stuff to it and then you can refill it and it's exactly the same that it was. The planets are systems. Oh, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, uh, just planets are systems, you know. Um, And so, you know, it's the habitability of the Earth is not just that we have our ocean and lakes, but it's that, you know, we also have this magnetic field. We have our atmosphere, which, you know, Mars, we think, had like a thicker atmosphere in the past, um, was probably much, you know, actually did have liquid water on its surface. But over time, like as the planet has evolved and changed, you know, it's lost its magnetic field because it's lost its magnetic field and doesn't have as much gravitational pull um, because it's smaller, as you mentioned earlier. It also only has a very, very thin atmosphere. And so, it, you know, it might help um, for some of your listeners to, to kind of get the ideas like with terraforming, right, is that you would be able to take something and, you know, in Mars's case, Mars has a lot of carbon dioxide. So, you know, here on Earth, we hear about carbon dioxide because it warms up our planet. So the idea is that you might be able to do something to Mars in which you release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, then the atmosphere is thicker, you warm it up, and then you can, like, have liquid water on the surface. But if you don't have any humidity, the water evaporates (laughs) into the atmosphere. you know, and the atmosphere, even if you put more in there, eventually, like, gets eroded by the um, activity from the sun as well, because we don't have that magnetic field. So it's it's kind of like this um, lack of appreciation for complex systems, you know, in the same way that, like, a lot of that same crowd thinks you can download your consciousness into, like, I don't know, like a Futurama, like, r- head in a jar, right. such a blank robot situation. Right. You know, complex well, systems are not separate. One of my favorite things, um, I, I've always been a huge fan of, fan of sci-fi, uh, and, you know, not everything that takes place in the future is sci-fi. I mean, Star Wars is, you know, technically in the past, but it's, you know, not really sci-fi. It's it's sort of a, a space opera or a space western. That term gets thrown around a lot. But, you know, true sci-fi has always kind of been like looking at potential future technologies and the ethics that surround them especially when it's sort of, you know, a synthesized human being, does it have a soul? Uh, You know, ever since a teenage girl invented sci-fi 200 years ago, like that was the core of what science fiction was, was does Dr. Frankenstein's monster have a soul? And what are the repercussions of of playing God? And you see those themes played out in uh, movie after movie, Alien, Blade Runner, Ox Machina, uh, or Ox Machina, I always pronounced that wrong, um, 2001, you know, and I, I think, you know, Star Trek isn't always thought about as sci-fi in that sense, but back in the 80s, the when they came out with the films, um, you know, two, three, and four were very much focused on, like, the, you know, how could you do terraforming? How can it be weaponized? And, of course, it instantly does become weaponized in those films. And also, you know, why are we trying to terraform other plants when we 
you know, let whales go extinct, or at least in the fourth film, whales have gone extinct. They have to go back in time and take some whales in the future to save the planet <laughs> in the future. So, uh, so those three films were very much focused on, I, I think, sort of the themes of what we're talking about is, you know, like it's very, uh, interstellar, you know, it's like, oh, we got to go out in space to figure out, a, find another planet to live on. And then it turns out it was all a lie. And really it was a way to figure out how to save Earth because there's really no way to have, you know, take a, a bil- billions of people and transfer them to another planet. The, the, you know, just just ramping up a hundred rocket ship launches a year to a thousand. Now that we're going to invest in space tourism, the carbon footprint of that is going to be astronomical. Uh, just to launch one rocket into space, it's something like a one uh, one thousand two hundred tons of CO two just from one launch, wow. right? So the idea, you know, and that's like seven people that we were able to take up on that one trip, you know? So imagine times that times uh, seven and a half, eight going on 8 billion. Right. And considering Musk's record of, of, of uh, launch pad explosions, I, I don't know who right. is going to be uh, <laughs> just r- ripping and raring to go to jump into something that he fucking built, you know, yeah. taking it off. I mean, we've always had, we've always had explosions in, in doing rocket. No, no, of course. It's very different. Yes. Yeah, many, many explodey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, but I, I think like that's that's the thing is that, you know, you can't um, you can't really have right like an equitable access to like going to space if a couple of billionaires are in charge of it. Like there's, you know, just recently in the news, there's been all of these like um, contests for, um, you know, private space flights that are going up that are intended to be space tourism. And they're like, oh, you know you will like compete for a spot on this rocket. And, you know, like that, that is sort of being sold as like equitable, you know, spaces for everyone. But like, it's Willy Wonka golden ticket. Yeah, exactly. A few special lucky kids who are all assholes except for one. Right. (laughs) Get to be murdered by a chocolate maker. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but that, that's the thing that like, I, I definitely do think that there are occasions in which, like, I would love for to see humans go to space. But, like, the the fact of the matter is that, like, the reason we can even think about going to space is that, like, our planet provides so much for us. You know, the, all of the, the needs that are not being met for people here on Earth is all due to other people here on Earth, right? Like, <laughs> right. it is not because the planet is somehow, like, Holding lacking. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the fact that the matter remains that, like, even in a future where, say, like, maybe humans do go to Mars, you will still need the Earth... <laughs> <laughs> to you know to make space exploration possible so it's absolutely it, we're gonna need all the resources of earth to go save matt damon i, I mean we've <laughs> had to go save him so many fucking times He's that i always yeah. getting somebody, himself somebody in actually, hot water somebody figured out like how much money like has would actually have been spent in real money <laughs> just to bring him back save matt right. damon and all the films that he's been in where he had to be saved and it's like in the trillions <laughs> man yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I think that a lot of the attention that has come to this recently has been that ultimately, like, these private companies don't really have a great business plan for space. Because the other thing is, like, a lot of things blow up and it's very expensive. So even if you are, you know, Jeff Bezos, like, there's still not really, like, a workable business plan for space, which is why you see people talk about, like, space mining and all this stuff. 
Um, but it, it is possible for us to make decisions now that have really, really bad, like, potential outcomes for the future of anybody going to space. You know, like, when we talk about terraforming, like, the idea of releasing all that carbon dioxide, what is the process that does that? It's strip mining. You have to strip mine the entire surface of Mars in order to do this idea that doesn't even actually work when you look at how much carbon dioxide you would have to release and also, like, humidity and stuff. So, you know, there are versions of like what we do today that could make it worse for humans <laughs> to go to space in the future. You know, like we could well, make Mars actually less hospitable. Um, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, not, not, we're not even talking about Elon's car that he threw up in space. Just all the <laughs> oh, my God. Which was on it. Um, they're, they're making it harder and harder to put anything in orbit because there's just tiny little pieces of metal and plastic flying around uh you know multiple times faster than the speed of sound um you, you guys saw uh gravity with uh, sandra bullock right yeah. yes yeah and, and they, they had to cheat a lot of things there like pretending that the you know international space station is in anywhere close to the same orbit as where all the debris is floating around um but it is a real problem. Anything you want to launch past, uh, you know, inner orbit is going to have to potentially go through, uh, you know, clouds of, of like a hail of bullets that's always up there flying around that are basically invisible. Most of it's too small to see. Yeah. Yeah. A paint chip actually like created a huge, huge like, uh, you know, damage to the International Space Station uh, a couple, maybe a couple years ago or so. So anything Was it a that's... Chinese space chip? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Although there was a kerfuffle um, on the ISS a couple, maybe a year and a half ago, about a hole that was creating a slow leak that appeared to be a drill hole, and there was a whole conflict <laughs> over like whether it happened up there or whether it was done before. You know, like part of the. Right. Um, ISS has been <laughs> a big fun memo, yeah. memo to get on the space. You wake up and there's an email like, look, we're not assigning blame here, but please, whoever's drilling the holes in the outer wall of the space station, to stop doing that. Right. Meanwhile, awesome. you flash back, like you, the security footage they find, it's just like one of the astronauts trying to put together like a piece of IKEA furniture. And it's like, right, the drill slips. <laughs> But I didn't think it was a load-bearing wall. I was just in a way, just drilling into that fucker. Um, so one of the terms that I've, I've uh, learned and I've, I've heard you throw around here, and I don't know if it's just a, like a, one of these things where like instead of exobiology, we call it astrobiology now, or if it is like a whole different way of thinking, but uh, as opposed to terraforming, this, this idea of ecosynthesis. And I was hoping you could expound on that for us a little bit. Yeah, it, it might be helpful just to like offer a definition for what astrobiology is. Um, you know, I, astrobiology is a really, really big catch-all term um, that just means the study of and search for life in the universe. So people who identify as astrobiologists like come from a really wide range of, you know, disciplines. So for me, for example... Um, I am from like a astrophysics background. That's what all my like degrees are in. And, um, you know, most of the time that I have been working, I have, uh, studied like stars and their magnetism. Um, and so when we talk about astrobiology, it could be somebody like me, or it could be a microbiologist, um, or it could be, you know, somebody who studies like planetary geology and all of those things, if they are motivated by, um, 
by finding or studying life in the universe, then that falls under astrobiology. Um, exobiology is kind of like an older term for it. I don't know exactly the history of why the terminology shifted. Um, but yeah, a lot of people just use astrobiology now um, to kind of be a catch-all for that, which is kind of misleading because it sounds like I know like, uh, more about biology than I actually do. <laughs> well, it's to me, it's kind of like, you know, because we have not definitively found life on other planets it is sort of broad and i would imagine like if we discover microbes on mars then that could be a whole nother term that comes out of that like i specifically study microbes on mars which is a, a more specific thing than astrobiology now we have a new discipline in science that's just for that thing right yeah i think those folks would still probably be uh astrobiologists um but they you know within astrobiology there's tons and tons of like little micro fields and subfields and you know because it is such a big like umbrella term people do tend to be like kind of specific about like what they work on um but yeah, I mean, it can be anything from, you know, trying to find like microbes on Mars to trying to detect, um, you know, potential life on planets orbiting other stars that like we can only mm. do that sort of remote sensing. Um, like we don't have any way of going there to like actually look at it. So um, the methodologies are super different. Um, it, it also folds in people who work on SETI or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which is, um, you know, actually trying to detect signals from technologically advanced life somewhere in the universe so it's really kind of a big grab bag which makes it right. fun but also kind of confusing <laughs> yeah so, with the so that, that's the big satellite dish that's in the mountain right thing the the radio telescope that right. we see in sci-fi movies when like james bond has to fight a villain on they needed a exotic location to shoot that thing on yeah so uh, that's so arecibo just, in puerto this, rico yeah, as far as ecosynthesis, I mean, that sounds a lot nicer than terraforming. Uh, ecosynthesis to me just sounds like working with the environment that's already there a little bit more. It's got the word eco in it. So right away, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's not as bad, right? Um, so is it really just a different term or a different branding or is there more intention with that? I think ecosynthesis, um, the way that I've I've heard it used is that it's usually talking about still trying to create environments but taking advantage of like the environment that is already there um and you know i i would say so one of the things that troubles me about terraforming is that we actually have a whole bunch of regulations um called planetary protection um so planetary protection refers to both like preventing contamination of the earth from materials that come from other worlds um and then also like protecting other worlds from material that we might bring there and so in places that are like biologically sen sensitive like um like mars you clean your spacecraft like really 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 well um in order to prevent depositing any kind of life from the earth on mars and like part of that is because we would like to be able to detect whether life exists there or did in the past right. uh, we're gonna so find out we we put life on mars by sending our own microbes there and been right like, oh, yeah we, we <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy there so so we don't know if other people sending vehicles to mars are necessarily following those protocols or or do we have an international agreement on that 
So planetary protection is built into the Outer Space Treaty, which pretty much every um, country has like either ratified or agreed to in some way or another, whether they're signatories or not. And so the way that that is like built into individual nations like legislation or like regulations around, um, you know, how we clean our spacecraft, like NASA, for example, has like five different categories, depending on like what your mission is. And Mars, you know, Mars is like the most protected because it is thought to be like biologically sensitive. And within the Mars category, there's a whole like breakdown of um how well you need to clean the spacecraft like depending on what it's supposed to do with other spacefaring um countries most of those uh most of them agree with the uh things that are in the outer space treaty but there's not always like a ton of oversight so you know um notably like uh there was a uh, Bereshit, which was the um israeli private space lander that went to the moon a couple of um years ago like crashed on the moon and then afterwards people <laughs> discovered that um someone at the last minute i think actually um not one of the scientists or engineers but i think that maybe the founder had put tardigrades which are these extremely hardy animals um they're they're also called water bears you can look them up online and see pictures of them um, oh yeah little little six-legged yeah. things that can supposedly live in the vacuum of space for thousands of years Don't yes look. so somebody put yeah. tardigrades into the spacecraft and like crash it on the moon so <laughs> i mean they didn't crash it on purpose obviously but um no, right, right. you know so basically they spilled tardigrades on the moon and okay. legally so they speaking, could be living there right now yes yes legally speaking they're allowed to do that because the moon doesn't like isn't thought to be biologically sensitive and doesn't have a lot of planetary protections but also like you know i think the reaction after the fact was like you did what <laughs> Tardigrades on the moon. So it's like the fucking the <laughs> British moon? guy who came to America and he read a poem about starlings and they were his favorite birds. So he imported thousands of starlings and they're like the most destructive invasive species now, just because he he thought that hey they're my favorite bird in England, so why not make them all over North America? Yeah, I think pigeons and, have a, a similar. I think pigeons were from France originally, um, and yeah. squirrels also like. Uh, the kind of brown gray squirrels that we have here also not not indigenous to the area so you mentioned this in your article uh one of the articles i've read um i believe was was most of the ones i read were written by you that um one vehicle in space that we don't know if it was decontaminated was elon's red sports car that's flown around up there yes indeed Ugh. Yeah. Um, Do we know how that went? Is it still in orbit? Is it going to fall? Is it like uh, just flying further out into space? What's its trajectory? Yeah. So it's still in orbit around the Earth. It is in kind of an elliptical orbit. Um, and so one of the one of the things that is frustrating about it is that, if I'm not mistaken, I think there was a slight error in the orbit um, based on what they intended to do, and so. It is actually they left the parking brake on, didn't it, they? right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so it is on an intersect, uh, an orbit that intersects the Mars orbit, but it's not necessarily going to crash into Mars anytime, like within the lifetime of the human species. But it could, um, and so you know, generally speaking, like even for example, when um, when NASA sends missions to Jupiter, right? So like Jupiter 
giant planet, big ball of gas. We don't really think that Jupiter itself is a great place to look for life. But Jupiter is surrounded by a number of moons, one of which is Europa, um, which is thought to have like an under ice ocean and like is a biologically sensitive place potentially. Mm -hmm. So even when we send things to Jupiter, there are planetary protection checks that spacecraft go through in case they make a mistake and collide with somewhere that they're not supposed to. And so, you know, like generally you have to um, make sure that the spacecraft would entirely like burn up and like if you accidentally crashed into Europa, you would have to like ensure that it was moving at a speed at which it would burn up and basically like self-sterilize. But the the Roadster, aside from being just like a really gross, like I can't imagine like a more gross display of wealth <laughs> than right. like taking, talk about the means of production. Like you take a car that you literally can make more of because you own the company that made it. And it's also like one of the most expensive cars. And then you blast it into orbit, potentially on a collision course with a world that has all of these protections. Um, you know, just to, like, demonstrate that you could. And people went crazy for it, too. Like, it was, I think, the second most watched uh, event on YouTube um, without any of, like, the understanding around, like, what it means to have sent this, like, rich person's toy into space. It reminds me of uh, the film Burden of Dreams. Um, actually, not even the film Burden of Dreams. The film uh, My Best Fiend, which is kind of the sequel to... Uh, Burn of Dreams, which is a, a documentary about the making of the uh, film Fitzcarraldo, directed by um, an amazing movie. Oh, I mean, my best fiend is and Fitzcarraldo is here. Uh, <laughs> and, and he talks about how, how director from who, help me out, guys, Werner Herzog. Uh, yeah, Werner Herzog, thank you. I have a coffee table book about Werner Herzog, and I can never pull yeah, his name up. Guy from the Mandalorian, right? That's that's. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have so I have he, actually he been in a Werner Herzog movie. Who <laughs> was, was in Brazil? Film. Wait, comrade, go ahead and finish your story. We yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Werner Herzog is down in the jungles of Brazil with uh, Klaus Kinski, insane Klaus Kinski. And they had a they had a hell of a time making this movie because they're literally trying to haul this uh, ship over a mountain, which right. they actually do in real life. Uh, but also because Klaus Kinski is insane, and he's just he's so belligerent all the time, and just like threatening to kill people, and just just he's a menace to everyone around him. That the locals offered to murder him for <laughs> Herzog. They're like, do you want us to kill him? Because it seems like he's making your life a living hell. He's, he's like, no, 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 I need to finish the movie. Please, please don't kill him. But it was just, it was like he was, he was so abhorrent to the people <laughs> who lived there. They were like, he's just an aberration. Like we have to, we have to get rid of him, you know? And I see like someone like Elon Musk, who's just flinging crap out into space with no consideration for how it might affect life on other planets that it, it's just like, on a, on a cosmic level, on a karmic level, what do you do about somebody like that? Like, can we just kill him? Can we just erase <laughs> him from our timeline? I mean, I, th nice. I think like the the thing about someone like him is that, you know, he he is emblematic of the problem, but he is not himself the problem, right? Like, I mean, he's part of the problem. Let, let right. me let me walk that back a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he is part of the problem. But like I said, you know, the thing that I think encourages me is that there are many other people who just don't have as loud a megaphone 
Um, and so, you know, part of what I hope to do in, in my work, um, and why I, you know, started this Just Base Alliance with my, um, my friend Erica Nesvold, who's, she's now a video game designer, but was also an astronomer previously. Um, and, you know, the two of us kind of wanted to make like a, a place where people who don't think like that and who are interested in more like ethical, inclusive futures in space that are maybe like, tied to the you know the thriving of humanity <laughs> um it, you know to to make a place where people could connect and sort of amplify voices together um which i think is you know you can probably hear reflective of my my activist background um but but yeah i mean i think like the the fact that I mentioned earlier, like Shannon Styrone's um, Mars as a Hellhole article, like, you know, Shannon had to take a break from Twitter for a while because anyone who even like modestly criticizes Elon Musk gets dogpiled by like death and rape threats. Um, And, you know, it's really frustrating to see people who have such a big platform who have the ability to say, like, knock it off and don't, right, because it benefits them. Like, they don't have, like, Elon Musk isn't interested in hearing critique. Um, And so, you know, it benefits him to have, like, kind of a giant, like, band of followers who will just shut down anyone um, who comes for him, even, like, with reasonable questions, frankly. (laughs) Like, Like, literally, how are you going to do this? Like, that's, like, the the basic, you know, just just beyond his capability to to feel that kind of level of a question. Well, he's got vision, right? And if you've got a vision of the future and you've got lots of money, you don't want things like, uh, you know, critique of the factual <laughs> reality to, to interfere yeah, with that. I almost wonder, like, if L. Ron Hubbard was alive today, if he would just be Elon Musk, like, instead of, like, a bad <laughs> science fiction writer, you know? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's yeah. the thing is that, like, people often say, like, well, you know, even if you don't agree with him, he's a visionary. But actually, he's really not a visionary. Like, most of his ideas are recycled from, you know, other thinkers before him, from science mm-hmm. fiction. Oh, yeah. um, I meant that ironically, by it, the way. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, it's a real thing that people really think. Like, like as though, like, his sort of provocativeness um, and his willingness to, like, let people just, like, eat others alive on the internet... Um, or even like his willingness, right, to accuse that um, the um, guy of uh, pedophilia. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like the the thing is, is that like his vision is ultimately like, kind of a boring one because it it's just like capitalism, like late stage capitalism in space, you know, like that's not interesting. It's not a vision. It's not radical. It's not provocative. It's just space capitalism. We already right. have Earth capitalism. We don't need right. space capitalism. Not working too. out super great down here. So yeah. That, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, we could talk to you for for hours, and I'm sure I could ask you three hours worth of questions just about UFOs and about like all that <laughs> sort of shit. But we know you have a very busy schedule, um, so we will, you know, we'll let you go. But where can people? Uh, you know, find out more information about the Just Space Alliance and other things that you're working on and projects that you're working on. Yeah. Um, so our website is justspacealliance.org um, and we're Just Space Org on Twitter. Um, I We do kind of like a week in news in, from space uh, through like the lens of social justice, like every Friday. So um, if you want to come like hang out and watch the feed during Friday, um, that's cool. You know, otherwise, 
Um, we're hoping to do more events in the future. Um, and also, like, I am on Twitter as Rocket Tolulu, and anyone is welcome to hit me up there. Um, yeah, that's that's basically it. Oh, and I was going to say earlier, I'm actually in a Werner Herzog movie. <laughs> um, what? Yeah, uh, I, I actually kind of thought you might have brought up my best fiend because of that. Um, yeah, I'm in a movie called Lo and Behold. Um, so uh, back, the movie came out in 2015, and it's about the history of the the internet, and it's it's partly like, um, you know, in the in the same way that like every Werner Herzog documentary is like about something, but really about a whole bunch of other things. It's similarly right. like about people's kind of like social relationship to technology. It's about that one penguin that just wandered off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but yeah elon is also in that movie um and uh i will just tell you that Werner is exactly like what he appears to be in like all of his movies it is absolutely oh, no, not you, a you put on he is, that. yeah not a, that's not a personality you can manufacture yeah he is exactly right that. that's incredible <laughs> um and what was the name again lo, lo and, and behold. behold lo and behold reveries of the connected world 2016 looks like it came out yeah nice well b before we totally close it out here there was one other thing that uh one of the other articles uh Lucien, that you sent to me and it was about uh this this telescope that they want to name after some guy from nasa that is uh problematic and um i don't know if you want to mention that guy's name or not but i i just was reading through news today and i saw some sort of uh Good news, sort of an alternative to naming things after problematic people. Uh, apparently, the unofficial name for the Martian landing site for the Perseverance rover has been named after science fiction author Octavia E. Butler. Uh, she was the first African-American woman to win both the Hugo and Nebula Awards. And now I know that this is not the official name because they, they internationally name everything that's a celestial body, but I'm from Chicago and I happen to know that in Chicago, the first name you give something big is the name it keeps forever. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, if, you, if you know any of the, you know, all the, all the things here in Chicago, we've renamed that nobody fucking calls that name. Nobody calls it the Willis tower. It's the fucking Sears tower. Okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know it um, wasn't the Sears tower. Right. <laughs> no, they, they just keep, they like, they'll never rename Wrigley field, but like they've renamed literally everything else. And everyone's just like, what the fuck is that? It's no, it's, <laughs> Um, and she had a great quote here, and this is from the 1990s. And uh, she said, America might be barely a nation at all anymore, but I'm glad we're still in space. We have to be going someplace other than down the toilet. We can see Mars in the night sky, a whole other world, but too nearby, too close within the reach of the people who've made such a hell out of life here on Earth. That's a beautiful yeah. quote. So, yeah, it is. It, it is. The, the quote's a bummer, but I'm happy that like <laughs> she's saying things that are prolific for what we're now, you know, pondering in our sure. our quest to figure out how we're going to do this and how hopefully it can be done ethically. Yeah, I, I think um, Parable of the Sower, which is one of my favorite books by her, um, is really like a wonderful touch point for what it, you know, just an example of what it looks like to be in the midst of disaster without spoiling anything. It's, you know, about people who are living sort of through the aftermath of an apocalypse that, you know, you don't necessarily know details of, but like the world has been shaped by um, mm -hmm. and are still dreaming about going to, you know, live in space. And so I think that 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 book in particular of hers um, occupies this kind of interesting space where you can deal with the the realities of the present and also 
not be willing to like sacrifice your ideas that you have about the future um even if they seem very far from reach at the moment but yeah uh, mm-hmm. I, i'll briefly mention um so this article is on scientificamerican.com if anyone wants to read it but uh, a group of fellow astronomers and i are um trying to get uh the next sort of the the next flagship space telescope kind of the successor to the hubble is this thing called the james webb space telescope named for james webb who was the nasa administrator during the apollo era which is obviously like a an era of like nasa's work where people have like a lot of nostalgia but prior to that he kevin coster and gary sinise and tom hanks and kevin bacon like what's not to love what's not to love um, yeah, so before that, uh, James Webb was the uh, Undersecretary of State um, during the sort of beginnings of what's called the Lavender Scare, which was the purge. Uh, people are probably familiar with like the Red Scare. Um, this was the purge of anyone who was queer from um, the State Department uh, and was kind of a continuation of like policies that existed in the military already through World War II. And it's become this big debate within the community where, you know, folks who are like queer like myself and my co-authors are saying you know like maybe don't name it after this person who like abetted the persecution of Mm -hmm. queer people which is still being discussed today like right now um they're uh so uh uh congressman castro and cicilline um put in something called the love act in 2020 that would actually investigate like the firings of all of people from the queer people from the um, from the State Department and would also provide protections for queer diplomats at home and abroad. And so this is not like a settled like thing that happened in the past. And also like, you know, STEM fields for queer people, like there's very well documented and researched like examples of discrimination that is still ongoing today. And so the question that we're asking is like, you know, yes, we realize like, he did some good stuff for NASA, like while he was the administrator, but also like he has this whole other aspect to his record and like nobody is entitled to have a space telescope named after them. Right. It's an honor. Um, And so, you know, like does that legacy that he embodies like really um, speak to the kind of futures that we want to be building because of this huge, like symbolic nature to these telescopes and the way that like the Hubble has like infused the public, imagination like so much so that like people are often wearing like space print stuff and don't realize they're wearing hubble data um because all of that (laughs) data is public right like it all like belongs to us and so yeah um if people want to go look at that um they're welcome to do so Awesome. awesome. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been uh, an out of this world experience. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get that space um, pun in there. We'd love to have you back too. If you yeah. Have, anytime. You want to come on, we have <laughs> so many more questions. I'm sure that we just didn't have time to get to, but, um, and I'm sure there's going to be other developments in space that we'll need an expert to weigh in on. So you are, uh, we, we sort of have a, a open invitation to, anyone who comes on the show we have a great experience with which is i hopefully has been everyone that we've ever had on i don't think we've ever had a bad experience <laughs> with a guest before but um yeah thanks again one. and well oh yeah okay i remember that one that wasn't one guest that was no that was two guests guest, but, but and, uh Oh, um, just if you think that was bad, you, you sometimes listen to the, the episode of their show that i went on because it was a fucking mess <laughs> Right. Um, I still had fun. Anyway. <laughs> well, thanks so yeah, much for having me. And, and, you know, anytime, just feel free to reach out. 
Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, obviously anyone listening, if you want to help out the show, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash move left, uh, facebook.com slash move left idiots. Um, Patreon is patreon.com slash move left. We have merch available at tinyurl.com slash move left pod. Uh, the show is on Twitter at move underscore, le- or no, sorry, that's my Twitter. The show is on Twitter <laughs> at move left pod. I am on Twitter at move underscore left. Uh, and as always, I'm on Twitter at bike slutty. And how, where can people find you on Twitter, Lucian? I'm at rock of Tulu. Right. Awesome. And we will see everyone next week. Oh!